Hebrews chapter 5, beginning at verse 5 this morning. Hebrews 5, 5 through verse 10. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son today, have I begotten thee? As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications, with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Called of God, a high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Father, it is not apparently the first thing in mind when we read such a text, but there really is a depth here. There really is a profundity here concerning the person and the work of Christ that takes our minds to that which is truly beyond all comprehension. We pray that you would help us by opening our hearts and minds to the scriptures as they are before us, that the Spirit of God might declare the truth of God to us in a way that allows us to better understand and appreciate the dynamic as a person in the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Thank you for the occasion. We ask your blessing upon us in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake. Amen. The text begins, so also Christ. And that reminds us that there is an ongoing comparison here that is beginning to be developed in order to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus Christ above all others. The section began with four things characteristic of every man who ever, who ever served Israel as a high priest. Number one, every man that ever served uh, as high priest, Aaron, and then those following, uh, was selected from among Jewish men. Had to be a man, and in the case of Israel's priesthood, had to be a Jewish man. Every one of them, Jewish men. Number two, every one of them appointed by God for service. Every one of them appointed by God for service. Number three, uh, had to be responsible for the, uh, uh, for the bloodless sacrifices and the bloody sacrifices that were prescribed under the law of God. Every man selected from among Jewish men appointed by God responsible for offerings and sacrifices. And then fourthly, every one of those men uh, was to, uh, uh, was to uh, be fit 
uh, to deal uh, with sinful people uh, compassionately. And of course, it wasn't all that hard because they were sinful people too. And it's not too hard if you are thinking correctly about yourself to have a measure of understanding and compassion for others because of the fact that you know that you mess up too. And in fact, all of those high priests under the Old Testament order had to uh, first uh, provide sacrifices for their own sins, and then they had to bring sacrifices uh, for the sins of the people. Now we're working, beginning at verse 5, with the detailed factual information of those Old Testament Aaronic priests of old, and the first three words are, so also Christ. And in four deliberate ways, Christ is also like unto those Aaronic priests, and yet in one profound way, not at all. So also Christ is our transition to the point that is being made in this passage, that Jesus Christ is, in these four ways and in other ways, highly superior to any man that ever held the office of high priest. When taken as a whole, the comparison contrasts demonstrate the supremacy of the person of Jesus Christ and the superiority of his work. In verses 5 to 10, Christ is demonstrated to be human. He is demonstrated to be compassionate. And he is demonstrated to be called. And those are important facets. Now, I was trying to think, how could I help the flock uh, grasp something of the depth and the profundity of this particular passage? And I was thinking about something that I read and wrote about just before I left on vacation. And that is that there are certain things that God cannot do. And one of them is, is that uh, God cannot die. He is the ever-living one. God cannot die. Uh, We also know, and I wrote about this, God cannot lie. God cannot die. God cannot lie. Those are two things uh, that God uh, cannot uh, do. Furthermore, God cannot learn. God can't learn. He never learns about anything. He's never learned about anything. Because if you know it all, You don't learn about anything. And so God cannot learn. God cannot lie. God cannot die. God cannot become. Because he always is. If he could become something other than he was, then he could change. If he could change, then there must be something that he's changing into that's either better or worse. And if he can get better or he can get worse, then he's not God. God cannot become. Now, here's the problem. We're going to work in a passage where it says Christ learned. We're going to look in a passage where it talks about Christ died. We're going to work in a passage that specifically says Christ became something. I mean, just look ahead of that. If you look at verse 9, and being made perfect, he became. See that? 
And so this passage confronts us with things about God that cannot be true of God and yet are absolutely true of God, the Son, once man. So I'm just saying there's a profundity here. There's a depth here. There's a, there's a, a, a sense of, of, of thought here that is, that is just quickly moving us uh, to the realm of uh, that which is uh, incomprehensible. And I want you to prepare your soul for that as we begin to work through the aspect of these particular verses of Scripture concerning uh, the perfections of Jesus Christ. Number one this morning, think with me about the promotion of Jesus Christ. In the same way, the high priest and the law didn't take the honor of high priest's office to himself, verse 4, so also Christ was glorified by God the Father for this high priestly office. So says verse 5. Now this morning we had the benefit of reading from Psalm 2 and especially verse 7. Thou art my beloved son, today I have begotten thee. And we combine that with what we know about Psalm 110 and verse 4, which are quoted here in this section of the Word of God as the action of God the Father in appointing God the Son as the great high priest of heaven. During his earthly ministry, Jesus said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father who honors me. John 8, 54. Both quotes, Psalm 2, 7 and 1, 10, 4, are known to be messianic prophecies. The fact that Christ is the fulfillment of God's promise underscores his promotion as high priest by the action of God the Father. Psalm 110, verse 1, is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the New Testament. Psalm 110, and verse 1, is quoted 18 times in the four gospel accounts and in Acts to present to us the Lord Jesus. Psalm 2, 7, is quoted or alluded to 10 times in the New Testament gospels, Acts, and epistles. Those two verses, Psalm 110, verse 1, Psalm 2-7, those two verses, are some of the most important messianic verses in all the Bible. And those two verses are quoted here in reference to Jesus Christ, relative, first and foremost, to the idea of his promotion, that the Father promoted the Son to this position of a high priest. And that brings us to the second thing I want to talk about this morning, which is a little more about the position of Christ. Because he is associated with the order or the arrangement of the high priest, specifically after the ministry like unto Melchizedek, by God's design, not Aaron. You see that in verse 6. As he saith also in another place, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
Now let's just back up a minute here so that we can understand the uniqueness of what we're saying about uh, the uh, promotion of Christ, number one, and its relationship to the position of Christ as the high priest of heaven. Uh, priest is a title of an individual that in some way or fashion stands as a go-between, stands as a mediator. And even the most lowly priest, in some way mediated, under the auspices of the high priest. Now, you and I ought to be interested in this ministry of mediation because, indeed, we are believer priests. The reason why I don't wear a funny suit with a, a, a white collar is because in this local church, everyone who has named the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is, indeed, a believer priest. And as a believer priest, you have the ability to go right to the throne room of God by way of prayer and talk about anybody you want to talk about. You can represent people before the throne of God. You can represent one another before the throne of God. You can represent me before the throne of God. You serve in some way deliberate as a mediator between people on the earth and God. And that also instructs our idea of evangelism because prayer is the first and foremost responsibility in regards to evangelism. We should always talk to God about people even before we attempt to talk to people about God. But in both talking to God about people and to talk to people about God, we are in some way engaging in priestly ministry. Well, here's a passage of scripture that is beginning to highlight the thought that Christ is the ultimate high priest of heaven. He is the ultimate mediator. And as a mediator, we are told that while he was, verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, like the Aaronic high priest in some ways, definitive, he is very much unlike them being after the position or the order of Melchizedek, who is a unique priest, and we'll get to him in just a moment in a little greater way. But for right now, we simply make the point that Christ has been positioned by God the Father as the high priest of heaven, or the ultimate mediator between God and man. And that brings us then to verse 7 and, uh, and uh, a reference, a very interesting reference to the prayer of Jesus Christ, particularly his prayer at Gethsemane. Hebrews 5.7 is commentary on the Lord's prayer in Gethsemane. It says of Christ, who in the days of his flesh, first advent, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears. That is a strong statement of emotion. The words would depict a description that we could state as violent emotion. Christ did not pray casually. He prayed fervently. 
Christ was not just calling it in and going through the motions without feeling it as he made his way to Calvary and the awesome reality of becoming the sin bearer. No, he was feeling it. He prayed about it fervently. And there was crying and tears unto God, unto him that was able to save him from death, save him out of the pit of the grave. He's praying to God as the God-man relative to sin and death. And the last thing we're told in verse 7 is that God the Son was heard. And the reason that he was heard by God the Father is because he feared God the Father. He held the Father in his due respect as God and Father of all. Gethsemane is in view here. In order to demonstrate the sympathy of Jesus Christ, the writer reminds us of his connection to sin, though not a sinner. Again, just back up in your mind a little bit to think about those other high priests. The reason those other high priests were were sympathetic towards sinners is because they were sinners. When my boys growing up did something that was foolish, Oftentimes, even as I scolded them for what they did, I had that parental thought. (laughs) I did that and worse. I never allowed that thought to stop me from correcting my children and helping them to be pointed in the ways of righteousness. The idea of a parent that they're not going to discipline their child because they were undisciplined is the devil's lie and is a ridiculous way to go about rearing children. But nonetheless, you know, my boys were normal sinful boys. And uh, we can't be terribly surprised that they were normal sinful boys because their old man was a normal sinful guy. And their mother, I guess I won't go there because I want to eat today. I, uh, no, I'm just teasing you. Their mother was a, a normal sinful woman. You get a sinful woman and you get a sinful man, you bring them together, what do you get? Sinful children. That's what's wrong with all of us. That's what's wrong with all of us. And it's only when you and I are under the, under the, 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 the umbrella of pomp and circumstance, it's only when we are under the influence of pride that we as sinners can look at other sinners and say, I would never do that. I would never go there. I would never be like that. Oh, please give it a rest. I've been with you long enough to know there's hardly a sin that isn't possible in your life if you don't follow the Lord. How low can I go? Oh, I can go as low as the lowest. Be it not for the grace of God. So when I am charged with mediation... I'm inclined, if I'm thinking right about myself, and sometimes I'm not thinking right about myself, but when I'm thinking right about myself, I'm inclined to be kindly, to be compassionate towards others because I know I'm needy myself. But, of course, that isn't true of Christ. We're going to have to find another reason why he would be compassionate. Because he never knew sin, and he cannot sin. And so we have to understand the deep and profound way in which the Bible presents us with a mediator in heaven who gets us and understands our weakness 
and understands our prayers of desperation and responds when we don't just pray casually, but we just beg God for things when we're overwhelmed of soul. We've got a great high priest, and we ought to know him better. And these verses help us to begin to plunge the depths of those kinds of things. The high priest under the law was connected to sin as a sinner. That's why he was required to offer sacrifice for sins for himself as well as for the people. So says verse 3. But Jesus, as God the Son, had only no sin in the sense of omniscience. Until he was connected to the sin of every man in the will of God at the cross. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Our Lord's agony, our Lord's hurt, our Lord's grief, as he prayerfully anticipated becoming sin for us, are described in verse 7 by the words of violent cries and tears. God the Son sought the aid of God the Father while in Gethsemane, the place of pressing. The experience of sinfulness, the separation, the guilt, the shame, the self-consciousness was all fully known by our Lord at the cross all while having no sin of his own. Nonetheless, he felt the shame of it. He felt the guilt of it. He felt the the separation of it. He felt the self-conscious nature of it. He felt the death of it. It was real. Just the thought of becoming the sin-bearer drove the Lord's prayer for help from above. He never did sin. He could not sin. But he became sin. And as a result of that, you and I should never doubt his high priestly empathy for us. The Lord knows what it is to be overwhelmed. He knows what it is to be in a weakened state and incapable of winning the day without help from above. God cannot be weak. God cannot lie. God cannot die. God cannot in any way be needy And yet you and I are confronted with the truth that God the Son was made needy. Humanly needy in order to save humanity. He prayed about the resurrection to follow his death on the cross. The text says that he prayed to him who was able to save out of death 
He wasn't looking to find a way around death. He was looking to find a way through death. And God the Son went successfully through death on our behalf. And that's why we call him Savior. The text goes on to say that God heard him. The Father heard the Son because he feared, because he was godly. Did you ever think about Jesus Christ as godly? What does that even mean? Of course he's godly. He's God. That isn't. You're missing the point. He's godly. What is godly? Godly means possessing a correct attitude towards God. He was always God. But he always had a correct attitude towards the Father and the Spirit. A godly person is a person who's attitudinally correct towards God. God the Son was godly. His attitude towards God was correct. And thereby his prayer was answered and resurrection followed his death on the cross. And just as a point of reference, you can jot it down in your margin if you do such a thing. But the last part of verse 7 is prophesied in Psalm twenty-two, twenty-four, 24 concerning the reality of the fact that he would be heard in his prayer for resurrection in that he pleased the Father. The place of Christ, the promotion of Christ, the position of Christ, the prayer of Christ. And now think with me, verses 8 and 9, about the perfection of Christ. Though he were a son, capital S, yet he learned. See, this is where it gets dicey. This is where it's so easy to think incorrectly about who Jesus Christ is. And over years of Christianity, all those erroneous thoughts have all been forwarded, written down, and promoted at one time or another. One error is to think of, of Christ as being so dominated by nature of God that uh, his human experiences were just fake or unreal. That they weren't real. And Hebrews, of course, would take that away. Of course, then there's another element of the thing that says he was so void of his godness that his humanity was so manifest that, in fact, uh, uh, he, uh, he, he was prone to sin. And neither of those things would be true. Uh, he is not a composite of God and man, 50-50, 60-40, He's not a composite. He is... 100% God, and at a point in time became 100% man. As God, he cannot learn anything. As God become man, he learned obedience. So says the text. So that you and I are not asked to do anything that Christ himself hasn't already done. guy that was my football coach back in the day on the first day of gathering would jump down on the ground with one hand and do one hand push-ups and uh, tell the team to join him in doing them. I didn't then. I can't now. <laughs> uh, you know, I admired the old man for the fact that what he could do, 
but I wrote it off as an anomaly because there was no way that I could do that. But when you and I are, are commanded of the Lord to live a certain way, to talk a certain way, to engage in a certain way in the context of life, you can be sure of this. He learned what we have to learn. He operated as we are called to operate under the guise of the Spirit of God, according to the will of God the Father, to the God's glory. Same thing, same exact thing. And so we read in verse 8 that though he were a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, made perfect, thought he was perfect. He was perfect God. He was made perfect man. And as a perfect man, he became born a baby. He grew in wisdom and stature. Favor with man and with God, says the Bible. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, believe on him, receive him to become the sons of God. Christ called of God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Think with me about these perfections. He learned in relationship to obedience. And interestingly, that word learned is our Bible word, mathetes, translated disciple. He learned discipleship. He learned what it was to be a perfect disciple, fully obedient, and as a result, became the author of eternal salvation. Note that the practical value of this salvation is only known by those who obey him. And that word obey means to listen and to adhere to that which is said. It refers to the practice of our faith in Jesus Christ. We might consider the fact that Adam is the man of obedience unlearned. And Christ is the man of obedience learned. Again, God cannot learn anything. God never finds out. He already knows. We speak the truth of omniscience, Father, Son, and Spirit. God the Son, however, became man. And as man, he learned obedience. His learning as man involved his submission to the Father's will. And his suffering leading up to and on the cross. Romacki, one of our trusted commentators, says that Gethsemane anticipated Golgotha, and Golgotha fulfilled Gethsemane. The yearnings, the longings of the sinful heart associated with Gethsemane find their great solution in the death of Jesus Christ for our sins. This is the mystery of mysteries. All locked up in the God-man, our Savior Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God did things he can't do. 
in Jesus, God did things he can't do. He learned. He died. He became. God cannot become. We teach our children the doctrine of immutability. We teach our children the doctrine of impassibility. We teach our children the doctrine of sovereignty. God cannot become. God cannot improve. But Jesus did. And he is God. Now let that bind your mind and cause you to think, I don't know what would. Finally, think with me about the priesthood of Christ as it again is referenced in verse 10 and will be now for chapters ahead. Called of God, a high priest. Called of God, a mediator. After the order of Melchizedek. The contrast that is most acute in this regard, as stated is, while Jesus Christ, the great high priest, is similar to the high priest under the law in some ways, he is very different, and the difference is dramatic. In verse 6, we were told that he is of the order of Melchizedek, who, of course, we know to be both a king as well as a priest, a high priest. That connection will be fully explored as we get to the seventh chapter. But for now, please note that the, the reality that no high priest under the law served as a king, nor did any king serve as a priest. You may recall the sinful intrusion of King Saul into the priestly office, as recorded in the Old Testament history. Jesus Christ is arranged after the pattern of established uh, by the king priest who met Abraham returning from the battle in which Lot was rescued or saved. Unlike the high priest under the law who lived, served, and died, Jesus Christ serves forever in this office of high priest. So is declared in verse 6. Verse 10 seals the thought of the Father's appointment of Jesus Christ as the high priest or the ultimate mediator after the order of the former kingly priest, Melchizedek. And so we're being treated here uh, to two uh, facts coming out of the Old Testament. No high priest under the Aaronic priesthood would ever, was ever associated with kingship. And there's a reason for that. And yet Melchizedek was both associated as a king and a priest. And there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is to present Jesus Christ to us who, as we know, is the ultimate capital K king the ultimate capital P priest, and the ultimate capital P prophet. The offices of the Old Testament era, prophet, priest, and king, brought to bear in testimony to the ultimate kingly priest and prophet, Jesus Christ. Here in Hebrews chapter 5, we have stress placed upon the forever nature of the Lord's 
mediator responsibility between God and man. Look at that word called in verse 10, called of God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That word called is special in that it refers to a formal public notification of a thing before the marketplace. It'd be like posting the thing for everybody in America to read. This official identification of Christ is after the order of Melchizedek, and again, that thought will be developed in great detail moving forward. But this morning, we are given introduction into the high priest of heaven, the one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ our Lord. And just saw how open should you be, how open should I be to people all around us that want to speak of some other name or some other person or some other idea of faith or religion. Just how open should we be to that? Well, concerning our own embrace, not at all. And concerning others, only to the degree that we might help them to see the superiority of the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the true one. He is the right one. We represent him. Let's not grow soft in a day of many obstacles. Let's ask the Lord, as we've sung this morning, for courage, commensurate to the day, that we might glorify the Lord Jesus and name his name to the end for the glory and the honor of our God. Father, help us then to set our minds and our hearts towards the Lord Jesus, to make him the center of our talk and the focus and pattern of our walk and the joy of our life, even as preached in these morning hours. Blessed in this flock, we pray, in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.